You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. No heights, no depths, no principalities, no powers. Nothing can separate you from the love of God except yourself. You're your worst enemy. Don't blame it on anybody else. Don't blame it on, oh, it's so difficult to be a Christian living in this present world, living in New York City. There's so many temptations. I mean, we've heard it. Those are excuses. They're just excuses. Nothing can separate you from the love of God except yourself. If your parents promise you a big inheritance, don't go buying new cars and houses in advance, counting on that money to come in. It may, but it's not a sure thing till it's in your bank account. The inheritance that God gives His children isn't that way. It is sure, and you can have full confidence that He will bring it for those who accept His invitation into His family. As Pastor Mike will explain in today's message, the only thing that can come between you and that inheritance is your own prideful resistance. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 as he continues his message, The Guarantee of Our Inheritance. The people in that day could not actually bear the direct uh, teaching of the scriptures. And so rather than employing that method to reach them, he told these interesting stories that are known as the parables. And within the parables, within the stories that Jesus told were these spiritual truths. So that's a good way to reach people. So make it relevant. Make it relatable when you have those opportunities, when God sets up those divine appointments, when he opens the doors and you step through, you know, make it something that's understandable, something that's relevant to the person that you're addressing. So anyway, Paul here, the idea of sealing again, now remember, employs terms that the Ephesians would be very familiar with. How's that? Well, remember Ephesus, remember in our introductory message two weeks ago, we talked about the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus was a great city of commerce. It was on the highway into Asia from Rome. And people from all over the world would come there to Ephesus to purchase and sell all different kinds of goods. And these goods were loaded into the hulls of ships to be transported. And they would be sealed with the mark of the purchaser. And basically they would do that by pouring over the various commodities that they were either purchasing or selling, or transporting with wax. 
and then their seal would be applied on that wax. And it, it, it identified them when the ship arrived at its final uh, destination. So that whole process, the wax uh, over the cargo, the seal, uh, and the person who owned those commodities would place his mark on the wax. And so that's another uh, way that we can think about this word seal. And then also, the seal not only uh, implies here uh, a finished transaction, but it also implies ownership. So we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The idea is that you are God's. You are His. God has put His seal upon us because He has purchased us to be His own. And by the way, I might add, with a tremendous price. Remember in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, in verses 19 through 20, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Think about the tremendous price that God paid His only begotten Son, dying in our place upon the cross. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God has purchased us. And how wonderful it is to know that we are owned by God. Amen? How cool is that? We're one of God's possessions. But then also next, uh, next, the sealing, the idea of the seal, also proves authenticity, that we are a child of God. Just as the signature on a letter attests to the genuineness of the document, so the presence of the Spirit proves the believer is genuine. I mean, think about it. After we give our lives to Christ and we're converted, we're born again of the Spirit of God, what a dramatic change has taken place within each and every one of us. We go through this dramatic transformation. Isn't that true? We're, we're quite different than what we once were, right? And, 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 and it's, I guess I know it's a part of a process. It's called sanctification, regeneration. You know, we've been set apart by God, and God is regenerating us. His ultimate goal is to... Uh, uh, conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk some about that because Paul raises that issue right here in this book of the, of the Bible and the book of Ephesians. We're going to talk about that. But it's a part of a, a continuing process. It began when we gave our lives to Christ upon our conversion experience, and it'll never end until Christ comes back for his church, until Christ comes and, and takes us home. Because the Bible tells us, and not before, the Bible tells us that when we see him, not before, but when we see him, all right, whether via the rapture of the church or, or we, di we die by natural causes and we're caught up before the throne of God, when we see him, we shall be as he is and not before. So it's an ever-ending process. And you've heard me use this illustration before. We might as well have a sign hung around our neck under construction. And it's true, right? We're all under construction. Whether you're a new Christian or the senior pastor of the church, it doesn't matter. We're all under construction. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. We are told there, If any man or woman have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So what's the issue there? Well, love. Remember, Jesus said that they would know that you're my disciples by your love one towards another. And being more like Christ. Again, this is God's design to conform us into the image of his Son. And that's the way we know the genuineness of a believer, by the way. You know, don't look over my shoulder and judge me, brother. You don't have to. You, men are known by their fruit, right? 
And you, you know, just how many times do we run into someone and, uh, you know, it's so obvious. I mean, uh, Clint and his wife. I mean, I met them for the first time on, on Thursday. I didn't even know that there was actually a Calvary Chapel in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I always just use that kind of like, you know, to make it kind of like a joke or whatever. Not that it's in Oshkosh. Okay. <laughs> Those cheese heads over there. <laughs> but, uh, so, but how many times have we run into people, you know, uh, especially here in New York, who claim to be Christians, right? Who, who claim to have taken the name of Christ. And, uh, and so you engage them in conversation. Where do you, you know, when you're catching up, where do you fellowship? Or, you know, uh, we're part of the Calvary Chapel uh, fellowship. Uh, and where do you fellowship? We're Baptists or whatever. And, uh, and, you know, you just spend some time with them in their conversation. And, and, and immediately, because the things that come out of their mouth are actually a window into their hearts. Uh, and you really know whether they're the real deal or not. I mean, there are so many people who claim to be Christians today who have suggested that they take the name of Christ, but they're not in anything even remotely uh, should be considered as a Christian. I mean, it's amazing, but it's, unfortunately, it's very true. Although there are many people that are the real deal, right? But there are so many, at the same time, who are or not. But these are the real issues. Love and whether or not we're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our authenticity, right? They would know that you're my disciples by your, one, uh, by your love, one towards another. So, it is not simply our lip profession, our religious activity. I mean, we could be real busy doing things, you know, uh, spending some time at the, uh, you know, uh, the soup kitchens or volunteers for this group or that work or... You know, uh, you, know, you know, let me tell you something. You know, someone says, uh, you know, in comparison, and we're a small group in comparison to some of the larger churches here in Manhattan, no doubt. And, uh, and we're limited because of funds and different things and numbers of people. And, you know, we do the best that we can do with what we have. And, and uh, you know, we've never been negligent in doing the things that God has called us to do. Because all of the things that God has called us to do, he's always prepared and made a way for us to be able to do those things. But in comparisons, they'll say, uh, oh, you guys at Harvest, what do you, you know, so what's your church involved? What's, what, what are you guys all about? And uh, you know, how many of you guys volunteers at the soup kitchen? And we, you know, there's been times where we do all of those different kinds of activities and evangelistic outreaches, and, and we've done all of those things, radio, ministry, and you know, we've done it. But in comparison, you know what, we're, more than anything else, you know what we're known for? And I think that this is the most important thing anyway, is preaching the gospel. Isn't it true? Give them the gospel. I mean, above everything else. And you can do that without large buildings, and you can do it without large congregations, right? You could just equip the saints, you know, as Clint was mentioning before, and that's what's going on right now, to preach the gospel. And that's going to make a difference. What good does it do to feed someone in a soup kitchen and not be able to communicate the gospel to them? I mean, think about that, right? I'm not putting down, I mean, there, I, I think we should get involved in community activity and social work, but more than anything else, let's give them the gospel, right? And uh, so, uh, amen. So that proves our authenticity. We've been sealed. Okay, let's go on to our third point now. And our third point this morning is God's first installment. Now, go back to verse 14 now, okay? We've already treated verse 13. Let's go on now to verse 14. The Bible tells us there 
that he has given us an earnest, or if you're reading out of a revised version this morning, uh, your translation probably reads guarantee, right? So either of those words would be correct, guarantee or earnest. And those words are extremely fascinating words. You see, in Paul's day, it meant the down payment. That is to guarantee the final purchase of some commodity or piece of property. Now think about this. Even today, you will hear a real estate agent talk about earnest money, right? You've got to put a down payment. Uh, you're taken around by a real estate agent and you've contacted someone and you're interested in moving into a certain area or whatever. And uh, they have the multiple, the MLS listings and they know where to, you know, to go. And, and, uh, and so they make arrangements and uh, you make the phone calls and set up all of the appointments. And, and then they bring you around to these different homes and for you to consider. And, and then you find the right one that meets all of your criteria and uh, you're ready to make the move. And so uh, to show that you're, uh, that you're going to follow through with that kind of a commitment to the person who owns it, uh, they contact the person that's representing them, and you put down earnest money or a down payment, right? You're so you we're familiar with that term. And that's exactly what God has done for us. Think about it. He's given us the earnest or the down payment of what? Of the Holy Spirit. So... The Holy Spirit, then, is God's first installment to guarantee his children that he will finish the work that he has begun, and eventually that we will be brought to glory. Let me give you a cross-reference. There's so many cross-references that I could have given you, but I think this is the most appropriate. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, notice, you can be confident. So, you know, you guys that are like kind of back and forth, up and down, struggling. Hey, listen, man, you're in good hands. You're in good hands. And we have this promise, being confident of this very thing. So you don't have to like call me on the phone and, you know, pass the mic. I'm not quite sure, you know, if I'm saved. You know, if I'm really a child of God, people are going back and forth all of the time because of their weakness, because of their struggles, right? Being confident of this very thing that he... Notice the capital letter H, right? Which is a reference to God. That he who has begun a good work in you, he's already begun that work, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What's that day? When Christ comes back for his church. He's going to complete that work. He's committed. And he's given you the earnest, so that it's, which is the first installment to guarantee his children that he will finish his work and eventually all of us will be brought to glory. And the only thing that can stand in the way is you. That's it. That's the only thing that could separate you from the love of God. No heights, no depths, no principalities, no powers. Nothing can separate you from the love of God except yourself. You're your worst enemy. Don't blame it on anybody else. Don't blame it on, oh, it's so difficult to be a Christian living in this present world, living in New York City. There's so many temptations. I mean, we've heard it. Those are excuses. They're just excuses. Nothing can separate you from the love of God except yourself. It's a choice that you make. But then also notice, there in verse 14, go back to our text, the, uh, the phrase, the redemption of the purchased possession. What does that make reference to? 
Well, it refers to the complete redemption of the believer at the return of Christ. So, you know, yes, we are being redeemed, but we haven't experienced the full work and act of redemption as of yet. Let me give you a cross-reference for this. In 1 John chapter 3, in verses 2 and 3, Beloved, and he's referring to the church here, that's who you are in Christ, you're the beloved. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. I already cross-referenced this, by the way. For we shall see him as he is. What a precious promise. And everyone who has this hope in him, that is, when Christ comes back for us, right? In the anticipation of Christ's coming, he could come at any moment. It should cause within us a very, a, a, an extreme carefulness in the way that we live our life, because the Lord can come back for us at any moment. So we shouldn't put off you know, making those choices, getting around the dealing with those reoccurring sins within our lives. We have this hope that Christ can come back for us at any moment, so let's live in relationship to that truth. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is uh, pure. So we've already read that before, okay? So then, so with that said then, did you realize that redemption is experienced in three stages, right? I've already made reference to this. Think about it. We have been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. We talked about that in one of our previous studies. Secondly, we are being redeemed as the Spirit works in our lives to make us more like Christ. It's a never-ending process. And then thirdly, we shall be redeemed when Christ returns for his church and we become like him. So the point is it's a process over a lifetime. Now the word earnest, this is interesting, it has also been suggested, can be translated engagement ring. Now that, it's not, this is just, it's more of an analogy than an actual translation from the Greek uh, scriptures or the, or the original Greek manuscripts. But I think it's, it's appropriate. I mean, think about it. After all, isn't an engagement ring an assurance, a guarantee that the promises made will be kept, right? And think about it. Our relationship with God through Christ, it's not a commercial one. It's not some kind of a business transaction. It is a personal experience of love. I mean, he is the bridegroom, and his church is the bride. And so we know that he will come and claim his bride. How? Why? Because he has given us his promise and his spirit as the engagement ring. Gang, listen to me. We have all the assurance we need. Okay, so let's back up and close out the message. Think about what we've been talking about in these two verses of Scripture. How rich, how full are the promises of God. We have been assured. He assures us of God's favor. We've been assured how that he shows us we belong to him. He renders our salvation certain. I mean, think about that, right? I mean, we got it all, right? But let me ask you this question. Do you have this hope? Do you know that you're a child of God? Do you know that God is working on your behalf to make your life full, blessed, rich? Well, if you don't, you can but it all happens through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of cross-references, and then 
We're going to worship the Lord and give you some more time to think about maybe making a decision for Christ if you haven't already. Okay? Let me give you a couple of cross-references because it all comes back to Jesus. Jesus is the one who sends his Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel in chapter 14, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus is saying here, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, the paracletus, the one who comes alongside to help us. Oh, man. With, li- with all of the uncertainties of life, all of the complications of life, man, we need a helper, right? When you turn to the left and your right and you know, your back is up against the wall or whatever and, and you know, there's no help anywhere, who do you turn to, right? Well, you should have turned to him in the first place, by the way, but the helper, the paracletus, the one who comes alongside to help the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever, verse 17. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let me give you another verse of scripture. Luke's gospel in chapter 11 and verse 13. And notice how these cross-references all come back to the person of Christ. Right? It begins with him in receiving Christ, and then the Holy Spirit is imparted. In Luke's gospel in chapter 11 and verse 13, if you then being evil, not that we're evil, but we're sinners, would be a more accurate translation, knowing how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And then one last thing. Remember, it's recorded first in the, in the Gospel according to John in chapter 3. And uh, Jesus is speaking about the new birth how that a person must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And he's addressing a Pharisee uh, who was supposed to represent uh, Israel. Uh, he was supposed to be the best of Israel, the spirit, one of the spiritual leaders of Israel, but he was kind of confounded by Christ's teaching and this whole idea of, of the new birth. And, and how can a, man, can a man once again enter into his mother's womb? And then Jesus, you know, turned that whole thing around. You know, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit. And, you know, if we're to enter into the kingdom, we must be born again. And then he asked the question, so how, so how is this transformation to take place? How can a person be born again of the Spirit of God? How can the person know and experience the Holy Spirit within his life? And thus it brings us to one of the most beloved verses of Scripture found anywhere in the Bible, John 3.16. How? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it's all about Jesus. You see that? There's no Holy Spirit being offered or given or, you know, unless we first come to make that decision for Christ as our Lord and Savior. It begins there. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. Oh, my That's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. Thanks for joining us. Did you know that you can listen to Pastor Mike's teachings on your favorite podcast app? Just search for In My Father's House. Be sure to subscribe and let us know you're a listener in the comments. 
If you don't have a church that you call home, we'd love for you to join us for worship this Sunday at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You can find all the information you need at harvestnyc.org. While you're there, you can reserve your seat by clicking on Contact and then the Register link. We're located in Midtown Manhattan, and there's easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. If you're not in the area, or if you're unable to attend in person, we'd still like to have you be a part of our time studying God's Word. We're live-streaming our services each week, and you can connect on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. If you'd like to hear today's message again or to catch previous Sunday messages, click on the Resources tab. You can also watch services through our Vimeo link or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Links to all of these are available at our website. One more time, that's harvestnyc.org. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to remind you just how much your Heavenly Father loves you. We also want you to know how grateful we are to have you as a part of our listening audience. Thanks again for joining us. We look forward to our continuing study of Ephesians next time, right here on In My Father's House. Where I long to be, oh my heart, not be troubled. I remember what you said.